Kids, you're in luck. There's Miss Perry. She's just dying to take you to children's worship. So uh, head on out to that door over there. The rest of us are going to be looking this morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 10. We've been working our way through 2 Corinthians. We're up to this great uh, classic uh, passage. Uh, it's printed in the bulletin uh, and also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. For we know... That if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, so um, this week on Tuesday, uh, I was uh, out uh, in the woods uh, in western Hanover County, tromping around, and uh, happened upon in the middle of the woods, and I mean the woods, Trees, vines, dense woods, walking around, I happened upon a cemetery in the woods. And clearly, I mean, when, when, when I tell you that, what you probably have envisioned is a, a neat little place with a few headstones with grass and that kind of stuff. It wasn't like that. It was in the woods. Uh, clearly, no one had done anything for these graves in 50 years, maybe longer. I, I don't know, but it was, it was grown up. I mean, and, and, and it was so dense that I really didn't see it until I was as about as close to it as I am to the lectern. It was in that dense of woods. And so I'm startled. Uh, and I walk around so I can look at the headstones uh, from the 1840s up until the earlier part of the last century. And I was just stunned. And then I looked at the uh, one headstone in particular that jumped out at me in a way was a tombstone of a little boy uh, who, I, as I did the math, as I looked at his birth date and uh, his dying date, he was about four years old when he died. Uh, and underneath all of that, it said, resting in the arms of Jesus. Don't know why that made me so emotional, but so I thought about that, stood there, 
Part of the reason why I was emotional is my car quit on me as well. I was stranded. <laughs> so uh, that was awesome. Puts everything in perspective. Uh, but as I looked at that, I thought um, Jesus is the one who knows this little boy. And while... Um, All of us, all, probably everyone who ever knew him, probably everyone who ever knew his parents or his grandparents has forgotten. Jesus is holding him in his arms. And that's what really matters. Um, and, and the reason why I tell you that uh, this morning is to help us understand a little bit about why this text has been such a prominent text in uh, the church's life since it was first written. You see, if you if you go and you look at the Episcopal liturgy for a funeral or a burial, this text is there. If you look at the Catholic liturgy for a burial or a funeral, this text is there. If you look at the Presbyterian book of common worship, this text is there. And the reason for that is because it's such a clear comfort to the believing church about the reality of the work of Jesus Christ for his people in the face of that thing which would seem uh, uh, most powerful in our lives, and that is death. So what Paul proclaims here in this text in the midst of struggle, in the midst of grief, remember this whole time leading up to this text, what he has been saying is he is hard-pressed, he is uh, discouraged, he, he is challenged, he is for, um, wondering if he was even going to live. And so <clears throat> in the midst of all of that, what he says, as we saw last week, is uh, that he does not lose heart, and today, he says, because of this, he is of good courage. And so it's important for us to see that and to, to stand upon that today. Because the, the reality is, the, the, the fact is that he's communicating to us in this text today is that what the church needs, what you need, what I need, <coughs> is a source of encouragement that is unfailing, a source of encouragement that never goes away. Now, now we love to be encouraged. We love to be told we're great. We love to be told things are going to work out. We love to be told that uh, whatever, that we look good or that, we, you know, my, you've lost weight or, or you sure look, you know, whatever. We all love to have that kind of encouragement. But the fact of the matter is, as great as that encouragement is, it comes and it goes. But this encouragement is fixed, eternal, permanent sure, powerful, gracious, and merciful, unending, steady, real. And it is the bedrock upon which the church of Jesus Christ stands. There is no other place to stand. There is no other place to go. There is no other hope. There is no other thing that can ultimately encourage us except to know that whether I am alive or whether I am dead, whether I am groaning or whether I am laughing, whether I am happy, whether I am sad, whether I am well or whether I am sick, 
I am united to Christ. And my destiny and my hope, my joy, my life, my eternity is wrapped up in him. And that is the defining characteristic of every moment of every day from this day to eternity. And so as he says this, it is a profound thing for the church today to look at this text, to read it, to think about it. But even more importantly, and AJ, you can put my notes up there, for us to think about what it is, the great thing that Paul is saying to us. He wants us not to not lose heart. And there's so much in this world that would cause us to lose heart. And there's so much in this world that would cause us to lose courage. Now, let me just say, when he tells us uh, that he urges us not to lose heart, and he urges us to be of good courage, what you have to see is that not losing heart and being of good courage is in a situation and in a circumstance whereby we groan. Okay? So so don't set up some sort of binary understanding here is either I'm happy or I'm sad. No, I am encouraged. I do not lose heart. I am of good courage as I groan. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we go along here. But that's the reality of what Paul sees as his life as a believer. Now, last week we, we talked a little bit about what some of those things are that would cause us to lose heart and cause us to lose our courage. We talked about our sin, the, the situation in the world, our suffering, our deteriorating bodies, uh, uh, people's sin against us. All of those things would, would uh, war against us. But I want to tell you something today that causes me often to lose courage and to lose heart. I alluded to it. Uh, in my letter at the beginning of the bulletin. And that's this. We don't say we nearly enough. It is a profound and powerful thing when rich people and poor people, white people and black people, Republican people, Democrat people, libertarian people, anarchic people stand with one voice and confess that we know the reality of the hope of Jesus Christ. One of the things that you have to see about this, and you may, you may miss this, I mean, Paul says we a million times in this passage. And you hear that and you probably just gloss over that. But what you have to understand is he is identifying himself with a church who who literally is at war with him. Who thinks that his gospel might be false. Who thinks he might be a liar. Who at best he is boring and ineffective, powerless, weak, no real apostle at all. And these are people that he led to be in the church, to have a relationship with Christ in the very first place. And yet he knows that they have turned their backs on him. And what does he do? He says, we know. 
He identifies himself with them and them with him. They are united even though they struggle, even though there are difficulties, even though there are challenges. He is reminding us very subtly this morning to say, listen, when the church stands together and says, we know, we know, we believe. Do you know how profound it is when people as different as us can stand together and sing that grace will reign? Whatever else may be true about us, whatever else may be true about me, whatever else may be disappointing or divisive or challenging our unity, that unites us. And it is the truth that we stand upon. And so when we say we, We are not just saying it for our benefit. We are not just saying it to remind us of some theological fiction that's out there when really what divides us is all these other things. What we are saying is, is that Jesus Christ is the center center point, the focal point. And in him, I, I am united to him and in him, I am united to you. And our common confession spans and is so much greater and more powerful than anything that we would tend to latch on to to divide us. We know that's our hope. We know we're in this together. We confess, we believe. And the unity that we experience in that is not just a unity that kind of helps us get along. It is eternal fixed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is so profound for us to stand with one voice, with people like Paul who disagreed with him, who disliked him, who were discouraged by him, but had to be reminded that in the final analysis, it's we us. We belong to Jesus and you cannot belong to Jesus without belonging to me. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, on, on, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He goes on, he's echoing that thought again in this text where he says, we are always of good courage. Yes, we are of good courage. Even, he says, as we are wasting away and even if our earthly home, these bodies, is destroyed. Even as we shall see that we must all not only face the deterioration of our bodies, but also be judged. We're going to spend some time on that in a little bit, because how in the world can you be of good courage and not lose heart when the high point of this text is standing in the courtroom of Jesus Christ? Yikes. I've never had a good experience in a courtroom ever because I'm only there because I'm guilty. Right. So as we as we look at this this morning, you have to see exactly what's going on. Paul is is facing for us and illustrating for us the very reality 
of what life is like. I remember uh, in my seminary years and my early years in ministry, whenever I would read this text, I would think, I wouldn't say this, but I would think to myself, isn't it nice that Jesus put this text in the Bible for the old folks? <laughs> right? Isn't it good that he put this text in there for those people whose bodies are deteriorating? You know, it must encourage them and comfort the old folks. Because I'm sure that when you get up in the morning and you feel kind of creaky or you feel kind of slow or you feel like, well, you know, my my arms, my legs, my brain, my eyes, my ears don't work as good as they used to. This is probably one of those verses that's real encouraging for them because they need it. Because really, look at that. They're deteriorating, right? <laughs> right? I, I would, if, if I were, if I were you, I'd be real encouraged by this text. <laughs> right? So, so the fact is, as we look at this, one of the things that we, that we have to recognize about the reality of this world, and this is so hard for us, is that the ark, generally, for many of us, is that we will age, and we will sicken, and we will die. Now, Marty and I have a strategy about this. We figured this out. We heard that. We've been told that. Many of you have shared with us how that's been your experience. And so what we have determined is, no, actually the way we're going to do it is, uh, we're going to age and we're going to die. We're going to skip that inner in-between part. So some people have a long, slow decline. We're going to have an immediate decline. So when we decide, you know what, this burden is too great, we're tired of groaning in this, we'll just go out in a blaze of glory. The Lord will just take us, and we won't have to worry about this deterioration business, right? Because, I'm, you know, I'm still in pretty good shape. I still feel pretty good. So we feel like we've got a few more years to go, as if, as if we could control that, right? As if we had any real say over that in the first place. What Paul is saying to us is, listen, you live in a world of decay. It's in your body. It's in the world around you. It's in the very universe we inhabit. And sooner or later, all of these things that we see, they're just temporary and they're going away. Right? So what do we do with that? Next, next slide. Um, so how can this help you and how can this reality of a world that is affected by sin that Paul says actually is a burden and that is, is, is deteriorating, how can that comfort you today? Well, it, it can comfort you in this way. It can help you repent of thinking that uh, your best day, your healthiest day, your most wonderful day is the way things always will be. It can comfort us and encourage us to recognize the fact that really, and, and if you're honest, you will admit this, that you know and I know that we exist in a world of deterioration. And at the very least, I may spend a lot of time and energy trying to ward that off. But the fact of the matter is this world is not the way it should be. Things are broken. And ultimately, that fact that things are broken 
is going to impact and affect us. It does impact and affect us. And its impact and effect upon us will only be greater over time. And so as he says this, he says, even in the face of this, right? Even in the face of this, I don't lose heart. So don't have unrealistic expectations for how things are going to be. And I say that not to to kind of defend you against it, because the fact is I am here to tell you today not to lose heart and to be of good courage, but to do that in a situation where you leave room in the midst of that for groaning, which is what he says, right? He, he says that we uh, do not lose courage, that we don't lose heart. If indeed we're putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, which is where we want to be of good courage, where we want to not lose heart, we groan, being burdened. Right? So what you have to see here, and the fact that you have to to, uh, uh, understand about that is, that's exactly what's happening. We want to demand that this world, that this life be heaven right now. And that... My expectations and the, the way in which I want to think about my life has to be uh, as pain-free and as easy and as uh, joyful and exciting as, and as fun as possible. The, the problem with that is, if that's what we think the gospel is, if we think that's what Jesus is for, and if we think that that's what, what our hope is, what will you do when you get diagnosed with a terrible disease? What will you do when someone you love sickens and approaches death? What will you do when something that you banked on, that you counted on, does not come to fruition and you're disappointed? Those things, if that becomes the dominant factor in your life, you will lose heart. You will lose courage. Because what will have happened is you will have failed to recognize the weight of glory that is belonging to Jesus Christ versus the weight of attaching ourselves to this world that is fading away, to this life that is deteriorating. And so it's important for us to, it's important for us to do that, right? So, so right now we groan. And he goes on to say, not only do we groan, But we recognize that in the midst of the search for blessedness, in in the midst of this, this life that we live, what is true of us? We have the very Spirit of God in us. But notice he says we have the Spirit of God as a down payment. Now, I don't know if you've ever bought anything where you made a down payment and then you made payments after that. The down payment secures it. The down payment is important. It's valuable. But it's not all of it, right? You, you've still got to come to the end of, of the payment period. So, so G, G, we have the very Spirit of God. We have the very promise of God. We have the proclamation of the gospel. We, we have all those things. And yet we live in a world that is falling apart. We live in a world that is deteriorating. We live in a world where there is plenty enough difficulty and challenge and sadness and grief We recognize that we have the spirit of God in that, but we don't have the fullness of glory. As Paul says, we still look through a glass darkly, right? So as we as we think about this, what you have to recognize is being of good courage and not losing heart doesn't mean a stiff upper lip. It means hooking my hope 
hooking my uh, 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 joy, hooking my thought about this life and this world uh, beyond this life and this world into the work of Jesus Christ for me. So it is so important uh, for us because we spend an awful lot of time and an awful lot of energy trying to make this world, trying to make this life heaven so that so that we can get through this as pain-free as possible. I remember uh, when, uh, when Tate was a baby, my oldest, when he was a baby, um, I used to work really hard to let him, now this is going to sound funny to some of you, but I thought it was really important that we let him sleep and we never wake him up. Now, of course, Marty was all for that because sleeping meant she could sleep. But I would be like, why are you so concerned about this? And I'm like, well, you know, I want our life to be easy for him. I don't ever want him to wake up when he wants to continue to sleep. I want him to have as much rest as he wants because I hate it when I have to wake up. So I'm sure he will hate it too, right? What a dumb thing. Get out of that bed, right? Wake up, you know? Uh, and, 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 and the fact of the matter is, that's kind of how we think about our lives is that we want to go through these things and we think, you know what, we, we want to make this something that it's not. What it is, is a broken world being redeemed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope. That's our glory. Now, it's fascinating that as he says that he doesn't lose heart and that he is of good courage because of his destiny in Christ, because he knows that even if the worst thing happens to him, that, that, that death does not get the final word on him, that Jesus gets the final word on him. He ends this text where he said we're of good courage and we are, uh, uh, and we don't lose heart. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And we hear that and we're like, yikes, how in the world is that a good thing? How is it a good thing that what I should seek as being of good courage and to encourage my heart ends with judgment? And particularly a very confusing verse because it makes it sound like that I'm going to have to give an account and my entry into glory, whether I get by the bar of God's justice or not, is going to depend on what I've done in my life. Now, there are many attorneys and many people here who make their living in the law and praise God for that. I will tell you that my experience is anytime you have an issue that has to go to a court of law, you've already lost. On TV, there's always a winner, and it's always the good guys that win. My experience is there's not many winners, not many winners, because typically what happens is you go in and uh, either you lose outright or you lose partially and only win partially or you get continued. You know? Never a good thing in my, to my way of thinking. So how is it going to be a good thing for me to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to judge me for everything I did? Not only everything I did, everything I didn't do. 
And not only that, but everything I thought. Everything I said. Uh, when I used to do youth work, I would uh, tell the kids about judgment, and they were always concerned. Not that Jesus was aware of the things that they thought, but they didn't want their friends on judgment day to find out they didn't really like their shoes or their haircut or or other things. Like, it's okay for Jesus to know that, but I don't want my friend to uh, know that I think her shoes are ugly, Right? Well, you know, that last time you uh, got irritated with your spouse, but you thought, I'm such a righteous person, I didn't say it. That thought will get revealed. They'll know it. They'll hear it. I think that's awesome. That time your boss came in and said something to you that infuriated you, and you took it, and then they walked out of your office, and when they walked out of your office... You thought and even said to yourself, he'll know, he'll hear it, it'll be revealed. People hear this and they're like, that's terrible. That's awful. I don't want to, I don't even want to think about that. I thought that being a Christian meant nothing like this ever happened to me. Well, just as we can say that we know, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, we know that we, we, the same we, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, a few words about this. First of all, um, uh, theologians have called this the great and final uh, litigation, right? The great and final courtroom scene, uh, But I want you to take you back for a minute. Let's remember that there's already been a gigantic courtroom scene that's taken place uh, in history. Just a few weeks ago, we read the the, uh, Good Friday liturgy, and we read about a courtroom. We read about a judgment. We read about uh, someone standing before the bar of justice and being condemned. Now, one of the things that you have to see about that is, is that when we read that story and when the people who were there who were seeing that story, they thought that what was happening was, was that Jesus was being taken before the bar of this penny ante, uh, nobody, Pontius Pilate before his justice and that he was the one who was judging. But in reality, and the beauty of the gospel, what is happening there is, no, there's a judge But it is God who is involved in judgment there, and God is judging himself. He is judging our sin, our disobedience, all of those thoughts, words, and deeds that we that we shouldn't have done, and all those thoughts, words, and deeds that we should have done. He is taking those into Jesus Christ, and by condemning him, he is condemning that sin. It is happening within God, taking in our sin within himself. And so the reality is, when Jesus Christ is condemned, you were condemned. When Jesus Christ died, you died. And so so there's a sense in which that has to be the first thing that we think about and the first reality that, that kind of shapes the way we think about judgment. So hold that in your brain first. Next slide. Uh, the second thing that you need to see about this is that consistently throughout the Bible, 
Old Testament and New Testament, there is an intense longing for and an intense anticipation of judgment. They want it to happen. They want it to come because the reality is if our God is who we say he is, if he is just and he is great and he is merciful and he is gracious and he is powerful, then he then, then he must judge everything that stands in the way of his purpose. He must judge everything that would do damage to his love, the, the creation that he loves. He must judge and condemn and not allow into his kingdom forever those things which would war against his purpose and those things which would war against the gospel. And so judgment is not just the thing where there's a declaration of guilt and innocence. It is the place where we see sin and death and hell and the devil once and for all judged and done away with. And so so we should welcome the reality of judgment because the judgment is a demonstration of the glory of God, is a demonstration of the justice of God, and it is a demonstration of the love of God. If God doesn't judge, he does not love. Let me say that again. If God does not judge, he does not love. If you have someone you know and you love who is destroying their life with alcohol and you don't judge that and you don't tell them to stop it and you don't react with some anger and and some indignation about that, I would be hard-pressed to believe that you love them. So what is what are we to make of this? Ultimately, how does this encourage me? Well, the first thing you have to see is that the judge is Jesus. So the one who is judging you is the one who's already died for you. The one who is judging you is the one who's already gone before you. The one who is judging you is bearing in his body as he sits at the judgment as he sits there looking at you, judging you, bearing in his body those wounds and those scars which he bore to declare you righteous and justified. Remember that. Secondly, he says something that's even more shocking is, on what basis are we judged? He says, on what has been done in the body. Now, how are we to understand that? How are, how are we to make sense of that, that we're judged based on that, and at the same time we're judged based on the work of Christ? Don't those two things seem to be contradictory? No, not at all. Because in any courtroom, in any situation like this, there has to be a presentation of evidence. And so the presentation of evidence is not the basis of our salvation but the evidence for it. The evidence for it. The work of Christ in you. Now, now, before I, before I say, say any more about that, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't help me. <laughs> you know, the, the evidence, you know, we used to play this game when I was a kid in youth group, you know, like, uh, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> anyway, I think that's funny. Um, um, and, you know, it's just a terrible guilt-ridden thing to, to do that, honestly. I mean, it's just awful, but it's funny. Um, um, I hope we've never done that here with our kids. So, um, 
But the fact is, what are we to make of this? Well, let me, let me illustrate this for you, and let me help you to be encouraged this morning. Jesus is judged. He goes to the cross, and he encounters on the cross a man who I would say probably is worse than any of you. Probably. And he entrusts himself to Jesus on the cross, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That man will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he will be judged based on what he's done in his body. You know? What did he do? He repented and he trusted Jesus. And he's with him right now in paradise. So if you're concerned about this, repent and trust Jesus. That's the evidence that you could give that in Jesus Christ, he enabled you to see the gospel, to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to entrust yourself to the gospel. He did that for you. You repented. That's that. Trust Christ. Because in, in this scene of judgment and in this scene of standing before him, that's your plea. You say to the judge, judge, you, you lived for me, you died for me, you rose again for me. I trust you. And I failed. And I uh, struggled and I was often discouraged and I was often cynical and I was often angry and I was often uh, sleepy and slothful and lazy and I was often critical and angry and I was awful, often self-righteous. Repent and entrust yourself to Jesus. Keep on repenting. And entrusting yourself to Jesus. Because unlike any other kind of courtroom that we experience in this life, unlike any other kind of situation, the way we understand this, it, it, it's going to be based upon some judge who doesn't know you, who doesn't love you, who didn't die for you, who didn't rise again for you, is just going to do whatever he wants to do. But this Jesus has already born in his life and in his body, All that your sin will require. So trust him. Trust him. Because the judge is the lamb. The judge is the lamb who was slain from the beginning of the world. Trust him. Make him your plea. And look forward to that day where you will stand before him and give him glory for what he did in your life. Let's ask him to encourage us this morning. Lord, thank you today for uh, this truth. Thank you today for this glory. And Lord, I pray today for those who um, well, have, uh, well, who just aren't interested in uh, the comfort that the gospel has. Pray that you would, uh, well, cause them to turn to seek and to entrust themselves. I pray for those uh, today who um, are uninterested in pleasing you, that you would show them your cross. You would show them the reality of your own judgment of yourself so that they could be set free. I pray that uh, that would move them and warm them. 
I pray today, Lord, as well for uh, those who, um, well, all their life has been recently is groaning and struggling and feeling the burden of this deteriorating world. I pray your blessing upon them. pray your grace upon them. I pray that you would reassure them of your identification with them and the union, the eternal union that they have with you. Bless us, encourage us, cause us not to lose heart today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.